Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Deborah Gordon, a senior principal in the Climate Intelligence Program at RMI, and a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Debbie recently published No Standard Oil, Managing Abundant Petroleum in a Warming World, a book that does an amazing job of helping us understand the wide variety of different kinds of crude oils and natural gases, and why those differences matter for climate policy. The book also offers a range of recommendations for policymakers, business leaders, and environmental advocates. We touch on all those issues and more in today's conversation, so stay with us. Debbie Gordon from RMI, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to Resources Radio. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So Debbie, we're going to talk today about your new book called No Standard Oil, which I thoroughly enjoyed and highly recommend to our audience, especially those of you who are particularly interested in oil and gas, as I am. Uh, But before we talk about the book, um, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working in energy and environmental issues. So I'm curious what brought you into this field initially, either as as a child with interests or in your professional life. So I was a new driver during the oil crisis. I think that that's as personal as it gets. You know, as a you know, 15-year-old waiting in line at the gas pump was not how I wanted to spend my time. And if I put that together with my love, I, if you asked me at the time what my single favorite subject in school was, I would have said chemistry. Had no clue that chemical engineering was even a field. You know, that's not how high school is. Um, You know, you take the basics. And so when I went to college, it was very apparent to me almost right away within the year that chemistry wasn't going to be my major and I wasn't going to go into medicine. And with the oil crisis on my mind, um, it was really, to me, all about chemical engineering. I worked in a hydrogen catalysis lab while in undergrad, thought a lot about renewable energy sources, and then watched, as I graduated from undergrad, renewables fall into the valley of death because the price of oil plummeted in 82. And from there, um, I went to work for Chevron. There were no renewables jobs to speak of. Renewable energy was already past, you know, in that wave of its, of its um, you know, evolution. And while at Chevron, doing a lot of environmental remediation, environmental permitting, environmental regulatory work, I got very interested in public policy. So that was kind of the arc of my career. And then I went back to grad school and public policy and really kind of merged the two, the chemical engineering and the public policy. And I don't think you get any closer to public policy and and chemical engineering than oil and gas. So that put me squarely there. Absolutely. And uh, your book and so much of your work reflects those, you know, two streams of, of expertise in, in such a <laughs> sort of perfect way. Um, you know, your story about the gas line reminds me of um, a recommendation that I wanted to make to everyone, which is the film Licorice Pizza. Have you seen Licorice Pizza? Oh, I've heard of it. No. It's got the best gas line scene that I've ever seen in any movie. Um, that's all I'll say, because I don't want to give it away, but it's really great. Um Okay, that's a bit of an aside. Let's talk about your book, which is No Standard Oil. Um, It does a fantastic job explaining, you know, one basic principle that a lot of people don't know, which is that there's not just one kind of oil or one kind of natural gas, but there's a wide range of oils and gases that are out there. Um, Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of why that matters for energy and climate policy? 
Yeah, I'd like to say this almost in the negative of if we don't acknowledge this, and it is a reality, but if we don't acknowledge that, that these oils and gases are different, we end up missing opportunities to reduce their emissions. So saying it the other way is if we treat all oil and gas as if it's, you know, oil is all one thing, there's a standard barrel out there, gas is all one thing, then we're not going to regulate price, use, and acknowledge these varying risks of different oils and gases. And that matters a lot to the climate, especially at this moment in time when we're facing more climate disruption at a greater pace, understanding which resources have the greatest risks and either managing them better or not using them as we use less will matter a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about those details over the course of our conversation. Um, before we get into those details, though, can you give us a couple examples of the different kinds of oils that are produced from different formations around the world and how they vary in terms of their life cycle carbon footprints? Sure. So there are two aspects, two main aspects of what make oil and gas really different from each other. One is their inherent characteristics. You know, are they heavy? By heavy, do they have a lot of carbon in them? Those are the oils with really low gravities. Are they light? Do they have a lot of gas in them? A lot of methane in them. Um, those have much higher API gravities. Are they sour, meaning they have a lot of CO2 that are packaged into them under the ground? Are they wet gases? So they have a lot of you know, liquids, condensates mixed into the gas. These are all resource characteristics that are reservoir based. You know, this is what, you know, the earth has cooked over millions of years under the ground and they're all so very different. And then layered on top of that, you have different industry practices for extracting them, for processing them, for shipping them, for refining them. And when you package both what the oils and gases are in terms of their characteristics, together with how the industry handles them, you end up with really different climate footprints. I mean, almost to the point where overall in their life cycle, any two gases can be a difference of 5x between the highest and lowest, and oil is a difference of 3x, including all end uses. Like, this is a huge variance in these emissions. Yeah, that is really huge. And um, there are a couple terms that you mentioned that I would love for you to define for our, our audience. Um, the first one is API gravity. Um, so uh, you mentioned that API stands for American Petroleum Institute. So if you could define that term and then also uh, define sour and sweet, what's the difference between a sour crude and a sweet crude? Yeah. So API gravity is basically the measure of the weight. How heavy is an oil? It's just, it's a relative to water. They just use a basis and it's in, measured in degrees. Um, and it's an opposite of what you think. Heavier oils have a much lower API gravity. So a very extra heavy oil sander, California oil might have an API gravity of eight for example, and very light oils going into condensate and gases have very high gravity. So they might be 50 or 60 or 70. And gases fall off the API gravity scale. A gas isn't measured relative to water. So there is no API gravity for a real, you know, a dry gas. And in terms of sweet and sour, and it's interesting, I will say something about both of these as soon as I tell you, sweet and sour is how much sulfur is in the gas. And why that's the case is that a very high sulfur field, hydrogen sulfide is one of the carriers of, sul of the sulfur, is deadly. So you have to treat these oils and gases very carefully so as not to jeopardize or put your, your workforce at risk. But they're also very corrosive. 
to equipment. So you want to remove a lot of that sulfur. And sulfur, I should say, is a byproduct of oil and gas that goes into the chemical industry. It's not like sulfur is a waste product. It's an actual industrial input to everything we do. And there's really not many other sources of sulfur in the world other than mining a volcano. So it's a really, the oil and gas sector ends up being as important a feedstock of sulfur as any, really anything in the world. But the one thing I was going to say about both the EPI gravity and the sulfur is if you plot the greenhouse gas emissions that we've modeled that are talked about in no standard oil against gravity and sulfur, there's basically no relationship. So the life cycle emissions have no relationship. And that's a big issue because the way that we price oil today is based on its gravity and its sulfur. So the two main things that we measure that determine the price, the benchmark price of a crude or the discounted price of a crude don't have any relationship to greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Yeah. The externalities unpriced. Um, so fascinating. You know, just one quick follow-up question. You mentioned the only other way to get sulfur would be to mine volcanoes. Do we mine volcanoes? Is that a thing? <laughs> we don't mine volcanoes today, but I, I think pre-industrial, like if there was the need to like, you know, homeopathically use sulfur in any remedy, you were probably going and scraping it from, you know, off the rock. Like, so it was something that there was an awareness in indigenous cultures, but industrially, no, we've been getting it from the oil and gas sector. Hmm, fascinating. Um Okay, so we have gone, you know, at kind of light speed through some of the technical issues that you cover in the book about the different types of oils and gases. Uh, we may come back to some of those details, but but first, I'd love to ask you about some of the high level policy implications that flow from the book uh, and the the failure to acknowledge the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of these different kinds of oils and gases. Can you highlight a couple that you think are particularly important for policymakers in Washington D.C.? Yeah, I would say the lack of transparency and disclosure on these underlying, you know, different oil and gas characteristics and these different operating um, methods is huge. Again, if you treat them all the same, you have no way to distinguish them. Even I could go way back to my Chevron days, we were permitting offshore Santa Barbara fields at the time in the early 80s, thought to be the largest find in um in the US. Um, and that it turns out that oil was extra heavy, very, very solidified, very high in sulfur, needed heated pipelines to move it, couldn't go into the existing refineries because they weren't designed to take it. It was unconventional. And honestly, we never uttered the word. And I don't think we didn't utter the word that this was an unconventional resource because we were withholding anything. Literally, we never acknowledged it. And so the idea that there are these mix of oils and gases that are, they have more differences among them than similarities, really, that this isn't really acknowledged, isn't the data is not collected by government, the companies don't really distinguish it. When we started fracking, for example, we didn't open the door and say, we're going to start fracking. This is about a decade ago. We're going to start fracking. What will that mean for climate change? This is a whole new technique to remove oil and gas from the ground. But there was never a conversation about what that meant for climate change. So I think that this lack of 
information flow, transparency, the fact that we're constantly evolving in this space with new methods to remove and process oil and gas, but there's never any discussion more than it's happening and no one really knows what happened is a big problem. Assets transfer, we have no information about that. Methane satellites are measuring methane. There's no one place to go to get that information. So I think that the single biggest overarching problem is a lack of transparency. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's exactly the gap that, you know, one of your major projects seeks to fill, right? The oil and gas index plus gas. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah. So the oil climate index plus gas started about a decade ago with partners at Stanford and the University of Calgary. And actually for me, my my question, and this happened when I was working at the Carnegie Endowment in DC and fracking had just started and there was a lot of conversations about, you know, the bounty, the new bounty of oil and gas that the US was going to have. Up to that point in time, we thought we were going to import we were going to be sheer importers of oil and gas. We were building import terminals for natural gas. We were importing, we we're building pipelines and expanding pipelines for oil from Canada. And this changed everything to frack. But my overriding, you know, like I had this hypothesis, if the resources we were going to access, these really light oils and these gases and these condensates were going to come out of the ground from a whole new method called fracking, which is to basically open up fissures and horizontally drill and gather these resources, then that would mean that there might be a real difference in their emissions footprints. And so this project grew up with um, asking that question, how do the underlying resources and their engineering practices change the emissions? And so we built a pipeline, these three models, the oil climate index has three underlying models, an upstream greenhouse gas emissions model that comes out of Stanford, it's called OPGI, and then a refining greenhouse gas estimating model called prelim, and then a downstream transport of all these products and also end uses called OPEM. And when you put all three of those models together, you, th you run these resources through all three of those models and add them up, you get the life cycle emissions from any given barrel of oil or gas, like on an equivalent barrel of oil basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a great resource. And, and we'll certainly have a link to it in the show notes so people can explore it, where you cover you know so many of the world's uh, major sources uh, of oil and gas. Um, but let's get back now to the policy issue. Um, you know, we've been talking about the the technologies, the types of oils. What are some of the policies uh, that you think could get at some of the lowest hanging fruit to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the industry? And what are the sort of processes that those policies would target? Would they be targeting, you know, upstream development, refining, end use consumption? Can you give us a sense of some of those sort of, you know, low cost policies that you think might be desirable? Yeah, and it depends on where you are. You know, obviously, there's policy appetite in different places for different things. And one of the issues with oil and gas and managing it from a policy side is it's a global affair. It's priced globally, the oil and now more gas are moving, there's are global commodities. And so there's a lot of fungibility and movement in this sector, which challenges policymaking, like what can we do in the US that will change the global state of affairs of oil and gas? We produce a lot, but we, we ship a lot of oil and gas out too. Some is cleaner and some is less clean in terms of its emissions. I think from a policymaking point of view on the methane side, and methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's the main constituent of natural gas. Natural gas is like 80 to 90 plus percent methane. That's what makes it up. And it's also when it leaks. 
hugely powerful in terms of climate warming. I think this idea of using a 100-year global warming potential is a really big problem for near-term policymaking on the methane side, and the oil climate index defaults to 20-year global warming potential. You can toggle back to 100 and see how differently those emissions reside, um, both in their total emissions in terms of their, you know, where in the supply chain the emissions are. But we're missing a lot of methane right now from the oil and gas sector because we're not counting it, basically. We're, we're, we're discounting its impact a lot. Um, in terms of U.S. policymaking, this came up early on in the early iterations of the Oil Climate Index. I mean, the Energy Information Administration, EIA, is not authorized to gather a lot of the data that we need. They just don't, they're not allowed to report it. They're not allowed to collect it. There are some limits on statistical agencies in the United States, EIA is one of them, that say you can gather information, but within bounds. And one of those bounds is if industry gathers it, you can't. Well, of course, the industry gathers a lot of this information, but it's not transparent or made public. So I think that that's a really big part. Another big risk that the U.S. is posing to the world from oil and gas, and I think somewhat unknowingly to most people, the heaviest oils, these will come from California, has really heavy oils. Mexico, we take a lot of their oil. Brazil, we take their oil. Canada, we take their oil. These are really heavy oils. The way you turn those oils into gasoline and diesel is you wring out all the carbon, the extra carbon, and that makes something called petroleum coke. And petroleum coke is, it rivals coal. It's worse than coal in terms of its CO2 emissions, and it's dirtier than coal. And it goes into power plants around the world, especially in Asia and in the global south. And the U.S. just offloads this. Like California, one of the most regulated places in the world, sells its pet coke. And it just offloads it to me, and, it, and it's very polluting in terms of sulfate emissions and particulates. So it's dangerous for public health. Um, so there could be tighter regulations around the, what I would call kind of the waste or the byproducts of oil and gas that the U.S. offloads to others. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, the so I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and there was a famous instance a couple of years ago where a refinery uh, in Detroit uh, was storing all of its petroleum coke in a giant pile outdoors uncovered underneath the Ambassador Bridge. And when the wind would blow, the pet coke would literally blow onto the community. And uh, and the, the pile was just kind of sitting there waiting for a buyer. Uh, and some of it, I think, actually got shipped to a nearby coal plant. But but I think most of it did get shipped overseas. And the pile is not there anymore, thankfully, for everyone. Yes, yes. And it's even that Pepcoke is worse for you as a, you know, in the neighborhood if it's burned. Like it's bad enough if it, if it gets airborne and you breathe it in. It's much worse for your health if you are breathing in the, you know, the resulting emissions from having burned it. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, I'd love to ask you a couple questions now, Debbie, about um, some implications for the industry rather than for policymakers. You know, you have a background working in the oil and gas industry, as you mentioned, uh, and you provide several recommendations for how oil and gas companies can play a more constructive role in making progress on climate change, uh, sort of setting regulation aside for the moment. Um, can you highlight a couple of those activities that you think industry can do uh, to make progress on climate? I'd say by far the number one, it's where most of the mitigation opportunities reside. This industry is really interesting. Rockefeller himself in the last, the turn of the last century was, you know, brilliant in the way that he 
grew up this industry as a vertical supply chain and they use their own product they use their own less valuable product to make more valuable commodities. And so fossil fuels, diesel, natural gas, even pet coke, this petroleum coke we were just talking about, they become inputs to extracting, processing, refining, and shipping gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, things that are more valuable, petrochemical feedstock. And though, so in other words, a lot of emissions are coming before I, the consumer, even see, I go to the gas pump and see a gallon of gasoline. And that might have been okay early in the 20th century, but in today's day and age of climate change and renewables, it's unforgivable in my mind that we should use fossil fuels to make those fossil fuels that we have no real substitutes for right now. So employing renewable energy, wind, solar, air pneumatics, just employing renewable hydrogen instead of making hydrogen out of natural gas, employing renewables in every segment of the oil and gas supply chain, maximizing that, can reduce emissions in a huge way. It also capitalizes the renewable sector. It integrates the oil industry, the gas industry, into the renewable sector and across trains your workforce. So the idea of building out to become more robust energy industries, the first place to go to me is the use of renewables in the oil and gas supply chain. And then the second biggest thing I think the industry can do is to report ownership and equity shares. And so the world has to understand these assets trade wildly, like they move hands all the time. Companies go in, companies go out. And I just think civil society and policymakers don't have a clue. And when you say, just just so listeners understand, when, when you say asset, you mean like a, 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 an investment share in an oil and gas field, for example? A field, a pipeline, a refinery, a processing plant, every part of the infrastructure in this industry is owned and operated by someone, a company. But who that company is from year to year, from decade to decade changes a lot. You know, sometimes companies go out of business, they're bought out, they merge, they sell assets. So, for example, when we see gross emitters from satellites, from space, from for methane, we need to know who to contact on the ground, who has a problem. But we don't have a clue. But there's no database for that. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. That's, that's a great point. And, you know, just one follow-up question on the use of renewables in the sort of extraction processing uh, of oil and gas. There are, you know, a number of companies that have announced these, you know, net zero pledges for, I think, what you would call scope one and scope two emissions. Um, do you get the sense that the industry is kind of taking action on on that issue at a, at a at a speed that you would like them to, or uh, are they, is it kind of the exception rather than the rule that companies are being ambitious on employing more renewables in their internal supply chains? I think it's, I think it's a bit more the exception than the rule right now, especially when you look globally at this. Um, Some companies are are leaning in more, say in Europe, I would say Equinor is a good example, you know, Norwegian companies. So Equinor, has all of their, well, all of their platforms don't operate like ours do. They're systems. They operate them as an integrated system. So not every platform has to do everything. They actually 
fine tune their platforms to do. Some will extract, some will process, some will re-inject. They all do different things. So they're very tailored and they're more and more pulling onshore electricity from hydro onto their platforms. So you can see who the leaders are. I think a big risk in the industry is the economics. I mean, the oil and gas industry has been around for like, what, 150 years as a modern industry. And when you take some of these older legacy assets, it's very, the economics aren't favorable to invest a lot into them. So that's where you need policy, you know, to actually create those incentives. And then you also need civil society to acknowledge that to do things cleaner, it might cost more. No, we were all just up in arms about the price of gasoline at the pump going up to $5 a gallon. And, you know, to have a war in Ukraine be the reason is something that is upsetting. That should not be the reason why the price goes up. But if we're going to integrate renewables and really reduce the climate footprint of the products that we depend on, that might be a rationalization for why we're going to pay a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So another question on uh, on the industry, you know, one of the really interesting questions that you pose in the book is kind of for climate advocates, uh, for, you know, those working in NGOs and in civil society, uh, trying to make progress on climate change. A question that you pose is whether it is more constructive for those advocates to try to work with the oil and gas industry, to try to leverage the expertise and assets that these companies already have, or to try to work against them, to sort of, you know, quote unquote, defeat them in the arena of public opinion and politics. Can you talk about how you think about that question of working with or against the industry if you are an environmental advocate? Yeah, I mean, I do think of this whole proposition of the costs and benefits of what oil does in society and gas do, and then the, and the externalities in terms of their costs, I think of it as a multidimensional game of chess. And if you are going to play chess, you can't either, you can't ignore your opponent and you can't be your opponent. You know, you are, you have different stakes in the game. So I think that I think that advocates have to get a lot smarter. And that starts with a reality check, which is we're not going to just turn oil and gas off tomorrow. Like we can have aspirations. I think a lot about New Year's resolutions when I think about this. Like it could be January 1 and I'm going to say, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. That's what I'm doing this year. But that doesn't mean I'm going to lose 30 pounds, right? It, that's hard. It's hard. And I could do damage losing 30 pounds if I go on a fast for the next three months. So I think that this idea of surgical precision, thinking about the sector in a more surgical way, getting really smart, having this, this idea of using national labs, using the government's intelligence, using academia to really get smart about what the opportunities are and how to go. Like I could go meatless for a day, but it's going to be really hard for me to live without oil and gas for the next week. So I think that, um, that civil society we won't get anywhere if the oil and gas industry is the enemy because we use the product that they're making. At the same time, you know, we're playing a game here in terms of how to actually benefit the climate, how to actually get what we need, but use less, use less of the most impactful. Um, I didn't raise it before, but I think a very useful tool here that can be used both by industry, government and civil society is shadow pricing. The industry does shadow pricing. So in other words, we don't have a price on carbon, really, not in the world, right, or, or on methane. But we, on the web tool for the Oil Climate Index, and I discussed it in No Standard Oil, we can put a price, basically we convert those emissions into a price per barrel of oil or gas. And you could start to then see the monetization 
of which are the most offensive assets and which are aren't being handled very well. So I think striking rather than this whack-a-mole game, you know, understanding which assets, which operations, which places have the greatest opportunities to reduce emissions rather than thinking you could just either summarily get off or you can fix it all just with a kind of a simple wave of the wand. Yeah, that's those are such good points. And it, what it makes me think of is, um, you know, your point about precision and getting smarter within the advocacy community reminds me of the many times that I cringe whenever I hear people refer to the fossil fuel industry <laughs> as if it were a single thing. And I think, you know, one of the really great things about your book is it helps us understand how much variation there is within the industry, even just within, let's say, the oil sector. I mean, there's a million different nuances that we need to understand uh, if, um, you know, if we're going to make smart policy to tackle climate change and avoid uh, the worst outcomes of climate change. So um, Debbie Gordon from RMI, one more time, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. It's been a really fascinating conversation. And I'd love to close out the conversation now with the same question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or you've watched or you've heard uh, that could be related to the environment or not related to the environment, kind of whatever is on your mind uh, that you think is really great and that you'd recommend to our listeners. So what's on the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, so I just literally finished it and absolutely loved it. And there's a backstory for a second here. So um, I assembled a group of retirees or soon to be and now retired Chevron oil and gas folks to start asking these questions. These are people that have worked in the environmental part of the community and have since retired. And I thought, gosh, we all worked so hard. At the time, it was more air pollution than climate change, but climate change was rising too. We worked so hard to increase the corporate responsibility of these companies. So one of my friends, a recent retiree, Lucinda Jackson, just wrote a phenomenal book had nothing to do with climate change, called Project Escape. And the subtitle is Lessons for an Unscripted Life. And it's about any time in your life, and especially upon retirement in your life, but it, it, she basically went into the Peace Corps with her husband, Zip Palau, and learned everything about herself in the world after a full career. She relearned her about her whole life. It is the most fascinating read, personal read of like a memoir that I've ever read. Oh, highly recommend it. That's fantastic. So she retired after a full career and then did Peace Corps? Yep. Amazing. Amazing. And and went to Palau. And she was such a, you know, she's such a good doobie that everything was like, if that was the rule, she was going to follow it. And when she and her husband got there, they realized that you can't live by the rules that are set when you go to places around the world. You just how countries and different people think and how governments act. And it, it's it's a great read. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for that recommendation. Uh, sounds really fascinating. And thank you again for the book, which is No Standard Oil, and for coming onto the podcast today and helping us understand it. We really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. 
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.